Well, I'd say that's a rough week for St. Louis Blues, right? Three losses, three games. Welcome in, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. This week in hockey is Joey V, the bread man, after... Honestly, just a ridiculous month of November and beginning of December when it comes to road games. Yeah, not What is cool. it, like 18 games in 36 days, and I think you played maybe like, what, three of them at home? Yeah, not cool. I, I did come home, and I got all my kids' names correctly, though. Do so they, they remember who you are, that's though? That's <laughs> They have gotten bigger, but oh my goodness gracious, I saw some friends at school that they have picked up. They're like, dude, you're alive. We were starting to worry about you. I'm like, it feels good to be home, and hey, the Blues have a nice little homestand next four in St. Louis, so this is going to feel like like uh, an all-star break for us. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And uh, we got lots to get into tonight for two hours. We're going to be in studio with Mike McKenna. Well, we're in studio. Mike McKenna is going to be in studio with us. He's going to be here about 630. Of course, the former NHL goaltender. Now he's a part of the Las Vegas Golden Knights broadcast team. And of course, he's a local product here from St. Louis. So Mike McKenna will join myself and Joe Vitale from 630 until 7 o'clock. And we want to hear from you. 65780. That's our text line. You can also send us mic drops on the 101 ESPN app. I'm going to throw this question out there now and we're going to touch on this in just a bit from the years 2000 to 2010 and I was thinking this the other night Joe because John Scott former NHL enforcer put this question out there from the years 2000 to 2010 name a player from that decade that you'll tell your kids was awesome that they don't remember? Yeah, that's a good question. I saw that tweet from John. I played with John in Arizona. I was a part of the organization when they voted him captain that year at the All-Star game. And I remember uh, hearing it swirl around uh, right around October, November, that there were some fans that were going to be making that joke of putting him in that position. And we all remember what happened. He actually did get voted (laughs) into the game. And I think he won the MVP. The team won it. I think he had like six goals in that game or something. He got hoisted off and like Drew Dowdy shoulder and a couple of the other players but uh, he's uh, just a terrific teammate uh, one of the best guys to ever be around hilarious beyond hilarious as cutthroat as they come and I know that was a good question and I was kind of mulling that around here yeah. uh, about in the last hour and I'm gonna I got a couple I'm gonna throw you away here in a little bit yeah so we'll get to that in just a bit but let's talk this past week for St. Louis as you heard on the uh, return tough loss to Pittsburgh tough loss to Toronto tough loss to Buffalo and Joe after the game last night and I said this with the fast lane a little bit ago I was surprised at how many people were well how many Blues fans were frustrated and negative thoughts thinking that this is a a fall apart right now for this team so I asked myself the question are they in a, a rough patch of the season or are they in the beginning of a down spiral uh what's the difference I'd say rough patches, you know, up we'll and bounce down. Back na- we'll back, You've bounce been around back. curves too much. I know. That was a curver question to me. <laughs> you can put water on a rough patch yeah. and it'll grow back. Oh, there you okay. go. Yeah. You know what? I See, think... Dan, I need, you, I need you with me at all times. <laughs> I'll, I'll help explain. Don't worry. That's what I'm here for. Um, you know, truthfully, Alex, I, I look at this as a team that is just exhausted beyond, you know, beyond belief. I, you know, I had a conversation with Alexander Steen, Oscar Sundquist, and um, Carl Gunnarsson, after the game last night, we were kind of stoving it up in Buffalo right after the Blues lost three in a row. And, and there we were all speaking very openly, and I was trying to get the players' perspective. I, I remember what this schedule would have been like as a player, and I wanted some confirmation. And, and Alexander Steen was just saying that these guys are tired. I mean, they are worn out. And, you know, he brought up something that we were kind of getting into discussion about, an interesting aspect if you really break down not only November, but kind of this whole season and how it's unfolded. At the beginning of the year, the St. Louis Blues – 
had the fewest amount of back-to-backs in the National Hockey League. They had nine. So mm-hmm. 18 of their you know, 82 games were on the production of a back-to-back situation. Everyone kind of thought that was a great thing. I think some of the players, the broadcasters, I mean, people breaking down the game, wow, that could be a really nice schedule and play to the advantage of the St. Louis Blues. I think we're starting to see now how it's a disadvantage because if you don't have a lot of back-to-backs, what you end up missing is three, four-day rest periods, which the Blues had a lot of last year. I think that first month they had like yeah. a four-day break and a five-day break in the first month of October. Right. Remember that? But they had a lot of back-to-backs last year. Alexander Steen said that he remembered one of his first years, they had 18 back-to-backs. That's oh double. That's 36 games. Almost half the season came off back-to-backs. He said he loved it. Because the players and the team, they got in a really good game routine where you play, play, and then you're off for a couple of days. Or you play, play, then you're off for three days. The Blues only have two, three, or more day breaks this season. That comes at Christmas or All-Star break. Wow. So, you know, the players are talking about how this play, off, play, off, play, off has really kind of disrupted the flow. And I think it's, you know, it's just showing how, how exhausted they really are. Well, and it also, I think, takes away from the opportunities to practice, Joe. And yeah. I know I was talking with uh, one of the players the other day, and they were talking about how, you know, it, it may not seem like a lot because in the NHL you play 82 games throughout an entire season. You don't need that many practices. But he said, you know, that really stunts a player's season when you're not able to go out there on the ice with your team and do rushes and work on stuff that things have gone wrong with in a season or in a game because you're not practicing. You're given the day off and then you got a morning skate or it's an optional. So those practices really have taken a toll on the season as well. Well, I think for the habits, you know, for habits is when you, you develop those things in practice. You know, I remember my time, you have practices to to correct the little things of the game, fundamentals of the game that Alex were starting to see kind of absent in the Blues game. Let's take it stopping and starting, for example. Uh, it's a fundamental that you teach and you learn and you relearn in practice, but the Blues haven't had a chance to really get to it. Offensive zone last night, Braden Shen's got the puck in the corner, and you see Kyrie and Schwartz just kind of, they kind of turn away from it. So a lot of turning, and turning happens when you need to conserve energy and when you're tired and when you're not sharp. So you see players turning away from pucks, and you see people coming back in the defensive zone for the St. Louis Blues, and instead of stopping right in the high slot, they're kind of drifting away. Again, it's a habit that if you if you aren't careful and you're not practicing and you're not stopping practice as a coach to correct it, it can drift away from your game. So just the minor details of the game you're starting to see over this last three-game skid have certainly kind of started to evaporate a little bit for this Blues group. Well, and Craig Berube said it yesterday after the game, you know, there's just mistakes right now happening. And I think those are fatigue mistakes, Joe, like mm-hmm. leaving Jack Eichel all alone where I believe they talked about it, where it was like it was just a, a lapse in judgment of, oh, my gosh, this is my guy that I need to take on. Yeah, don't do that yeah you just can't let him stick he's a good player (laughs) anytime you go four or five stick moves to the net you know you're wide open (laughs) don't just say hey here's the net you you just take a good shot right in front of our goal you shouldn't do that especially for jack eichel that defeats the purpose of letting the goalie take the guy (laughs) one-on-one but defensively though joe i think that's the part that really gets me because and I'm not even talking defensively for the forwards. I'm talking defensively in general. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys were used to playing with six guys last year, and it was the same pairing every night. Gunnarsson, Petrangelo, Bo Meester, Pareko. They got into that rhythm in the second half of the season. 
I really think that, at least in my opinion, has taken a toll on these guys also. I do. And, you know, Alex, when it's a good point you brought up there because when Craig Berube took over last year, I remember when Mike Yo got fired, the very next practice, the first practice under Craig Berube, I'll never forget the drill. We were over there out uh, North County at the practice facility at the Mills, and he had a three-on-three down low drill. It was three fours against three defenders, two D and one centerman. And he was just barking, and he was yelling at the guys to stick in, you know, defend, two-on-one. He was yelling at the players. But the drill was simple. It was three-on-three down low because that is defensive coverage. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what defensive coverage is, and that is exactly what went wrong last night for Robert Thomas and Vince Dunn. There was a lack of communication. There was a lack of execution some way or another. It looked like Robert Thomas was wanting to go high, but he had to be replaced by Vince Dunn. But Vince Dunn had his back turned, and he was already looking high but anyway long story short those are those are areas of the game like stopping and starting that you clean up in practice and you do it by those download three on three drills uh, communicate through the defensive coverage uh, to work out those kinks because you can see with the lack of practice and how it can affect you and how pucks can end up in the back of your net you said this post game joe one of the bright spots, maybe one of the only bright spots from that game last night, I thought, too, was Jordan Cairo. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, two shots on net. He had two hits. He created an awful lot of offense in that first period. The speed was prevalent, and I think Jordan Cairo looked like a player that has been such a highly touted prospect. Yeah, he was jumping. And you know what? I love the decision by Craig Berube to not only, you know, for Doug Armstrong, not only to call him up, but then Craig Berube's decision to put him on a line where he's going to be productive. I mean, that that was something when he got a sniff last year. You know, he was getting sniffs on third line with Tyler Bozak. And no disrespect to Tyler Bozak or Robert Thomas, but Robert Thomas was a rookie, and Tyler Bozak was kind of feeling his way in into this lineup and this team and this city, and he was adjusting as well. But you have Jordan Kyrie, you get called up for the Buffalo game and put him right up there with the big dogs, Braden Shen and Jaden Schwartz. That is a productive situation where a player like him can thrive. I think when Jordan Kyrie is not hesitating, he's not nervous, when he just plays fast and assertive like he did last night he's an effective player you see how his speed really kind of disrupted the Buffalo defensemen. They had pucks on their stick, and all of a sudden it was stripped away by Jordan Kyrie, one of the first chances in the game. I believe it was Miller right in front of Olmar, right around the hash marks. He got stripped because it it kind of catches it by surprise because most players in the National Hockey League are just not that fast. I mean, there's just quite being honest, they're just not very fast like that. They don't have that explosive two, three strides, and Jordan can kind of giddy up really quickly. And when he does, he can strip pucks. He did it a lot last night. He had a couple good setups. He had that wrap chance in the second period where Braden Shen couldn't bear in the back door. A fast play. I don't, don't know if Shenner really kind of saw that coming. But his speed alone, it just it creates so much. And, and that is his biggest asset. It's his biggest gift. And when he's doing that, he will generate a lot of offense for this team. I was really hoping one of those shots were going to go in. Not just yeah. because you wanted to see Kairou score, but him, him with confidence is a scary player. Yeah. I mean, you saw that in the minors. I mean, that hat trick that he scored, I don't know if you saw any highlights from it, Joe, or if the listeners saw any highlights from it, but... I mean, he was exuding confidence on the ice against the Iowa Wild with that puck on his stick. Well, he he they needed him to be a spark. I mean, last night's game was something where you have young guys come up, Austin Pagansky, Jordan Cairo. You know, Craig Bruby spoke about these young players need to be that spark. And I think Jordan, you know, an area of the game to me that really stood out that I've noticed a huge change in him from the last time we see him in the National Hockey League about this time last year was his strength on his pucks. I mean, he, he's not a very big guy, Alex, and we, we talked to him in the locker room quite a bit. 
but he's not an overly big guy. He's not overly muscular. I think he's still grown into his his physique and his body. I think he actually has some growing still to do. But you know, he's got the puck in the corner, and you have like Ristolainen. I mean, you have uh, Jack Eichel who's working on the back of him, and and he's spinning off checks very well for for being a skinnier player in this league and a bit shorter. So the fact that he is uh, a good puck possessor and he's strong in the puck, kind of like David Perron, that is going to keep you uh, with this head coach trusting you a lot more. Where you're going to earn a lot more ice time. It's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario, Dan Betlock in the house as well. It is this week in hockey, and we're hanging out here until 8 o'clock. Again, Mike McKenna, former NHL goaltender and St. Louis hockey product, is going to join Joe and I from 6.30 until 7 o'clock tonight. But coming up next, I want to hear from you. 6578 or you can send us a mic drop to the 101 ESPN app. And this can go beyond hockey if you want. But we're going to start with hockey. From the years 2000 to 2010, who would you tell your kids was an incredible player that they won't know about. Joe and I will discuss that next on This Week in Hockey here on 101 ESPN. So again, we'll be joined by Mike McKenna, former NHL goaltender, local product, local hockey product here, and he is the pre- and post-game host on the television side with the Las Vegas Golden Knights. He's going to be in studio with us in our next two segments. i got to tell you, Joe, I'm interested to talk with him more uh, but do you remember that crazy year that he went through where it was four or five teams, different teams in the NHL and AHL, and that, of course, was the final year? It's got to be the final straw for a goaltender where yeah. it's like, okay, this is this is too much for me. I think that was last year, wasn't I it? I believe so. Because we saw him in Philadelphia, yeah. and he was the backup. I believe he was the – was he the backup when Jordan Bennington got his first start? Or was – I think he was. He might have been. I think he was. I'll have to look that yeah, up. Pull but, it up. You know, he was in Philly, and, and that was one of the <laughs> 1,000 teams he was a part of last year. And, and I remember having that conversation with Mike. I talked to him after that game, and, and you can just tell he was worn out. At, at that point in, in the stage of the game, it's one thing to bounce around uh, NHL team to NHL team, but to go up and down from the American League to the National League, uh, down the American League, across the country to another American League team, I mean – when you have a wife, you know, he's got two little girls, that is a that is a big task and that is that just weighs on your mind, especially for a player and a goaltender like Mike who has been in the league a long time and has played for almost every team, American and nationally. <laughs> That's incredible for, for somebody to sit there and say that he's played for nearly every team in the National Hockey League and probably the American Hockey League as well. So Mike will join us in our next segment and I threw the question out there. From 2000 to 2010, and this can go beyond the NHL, but I want to stick with that. Who will you tell your kids that they were incredible players that they won't know about now? And this question was posed by John Scott, the former NHLer, on I believe it was TSN or Sportsnet the other night, talking about this question. And Mike McKenna actually is popping in with us right now, which is even better because we're getting into this conversation as Mike McKenna sits down with us. But from 2000 to 2010, when you look back at the NHL players, whether it's a forward, a defenseman, a goaltender, who will you tell your kids was incredible? So ponder that while we welcome in Mike McKenna. Mike, I am pumped that you're here, buddy. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me in today. Welcome back to St. Louis after back and forth with the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, I'm pretty evenly split between Vegas here, Denver, it's... It's busy, but uh, it's nice. You know, I'm in town for 
about 10 days out of a month in St. Louis. So it's and cool to be home during the wintertime, see the trees change colors, Christmas lights, all that stuff. Well, your hairline's starting to split, too, like, <laughs> through all the stress of it all. But you look good. Bit. But it's just gray. <laughs> Premature graying, you know? Well, Mike came down and he joined us. He's actually on the way with his wife downtown to dinner. I think he's going to hook up with some of the Vegas crew who's we are. in town because of the Golden Knights. Obviously, you're in town playing the Blues tomorrow night. So thanks for stopping by, Mike. My pleasure. Yeah, they came in today, so meet up with all the broadcast crew, which for me is different. You know, Joey, you travel around with the team. You're mm-hmm. used to that. Yeah. But for me, I'm bunkered into either Vegas or doing away games in Denver. So I'll get a little taste of what the crew does on the road together. That's awesome. And so we're going to talk all about the Las Vegas Golden Knights game. We'll talk about Mike McKenna and hockey here in St. Louis. But Mike, I threw the question. Joey and I were going to talk about this, and I'll say it again as you were walking in with us. From 2000 to 2010, when you think of players that dominated the NHL that may not be talked about a lot right now, who will you tell your kids were incredible? And I'll start it off because this one completely slipped my mind that he was so dominant in the NHL. Danny Heatley. Oh, he was good. Right? Heater. <laughs> Hot Wheels Heatley. For uh, Ottawa oh, Centers. Yeah. There's a Twitter handle. Someone pretend is probably the funniest Twitter yes. handle. What is that called? Danny All-Star, something Danny like that. Danny All-Star. It was really good when he was still active. Yeah, it was. Like, it's trailed <laughs> off. The guys tried to brand himself a bit, but back in the day, man. Ooh, there's, a, there's another Twitter handle out there, too. It's not the Atlanta Thrashers that yeah. makes fun of the Atlanta Thrashers, basically saying, like, oh, so-and-so. I think they had one last year that basically said the St. Louis Blues are the first team to be this bad in the NHL that hasn't won a Stanley Cup since the Atlanta Thrashers. To <laughs> <laughs> your point, though, Alex, I remember playing against Danny Heatley, and you know he he reminded me a lot of Evgeny Malkin in the sense that it was just so natural. And, and that's why I think Heatley got so much flack throughout his career because you know he wasn't a player that really prided himself on Mike. I mean, you were you were with Ottawa probably some years later after Danny was gone. But he didn't. He didn't pride himself in the workouts or taking care, took care of his body. He didn't. I, I heard some stories that summer hockey. He would show up like in the end of August, right to Ottawa, and would literally unpack his bag. And it was the same appearance and the way it was packed from the trainers from when they oh <laughs> packed it back in April when the season was over. Like he didn't do anything, but he was such a natural. The way he sliced through players. Uh, with his size and just the natural ability to do it without having to work on it day in and day out, which is why I think he was such a special player. Oh, and that would just frustrate people so much. Really? Yeah. Oh, when you get somebody who's a natural like that, and you'd see it with goalies too, that they'd put the gear away in the in the springtime and then they'd wheel it out for the fall, and that's gone by the wayside. I mean, I, I started to take more time as I got older, but I'd still buy – you know, early, mid-April, I'd start kicking it back into gear. But there are always the stories out there of the few guys that just put it away in the ba- in the basement or a garage, and you didn't see it for like five months. That's just it. Hey, I got one for you guys. Okay. Uh, how about Chris Drury? Chris Drury. Sick player. So I had his blade ever since I was a kid. The Drury, yeah. the Easton, remember those yeah, sticks? You, use, you went to a Sackick later on, I though. did. Yeah, I went <laughs> yeah. from a Drury to a Sackick, <laughs> and Chris awesome. Drury had like this heel curve, and I, I just idolized him. And I was kind of thinking back, and I saw a Drury stick in my garage when we were talking about this earlier today. I was like, oh, my God, Chris Drury. And, and you know, he, he was a player. Uh, you know, he, he totaled 534 points, which is, you know, pretty good. But throughout the 2000s, you know, he had that run with the Colorado. He won the Cup in, in 2000 with the Avalanche. But to me, uh, players that become forgetful, Mike, uh, 
for two reasons. Either they don't win any hardware, they don't want to stay in the cup. Look at Kika Chuck, for example. I mean, he's done pretty much everything in this game except win a cup, and a lot of people do forget about him, and he's kind of one of those question marks for the Hall of Fame. So that's one way. You don't win a cup. And the other one is you do the old Mike McKenna, and you basically bounce around from team to team to team to team to team to team. You just never stop. And I think that's what Chris Drury did. You know, from Calgary, I think the Colorado. I know he finished his career in New York. He was in Buffalo. Because I remember the Buffalo teams with they had a couple of other players that was just like, how the hell is this team not winning a Stanley Cup? Yeah, but he was a stud, man. As far as a two-way forward, a two-way like winger, he played center a lot towards the end of his career as well. Chris Jury was a player I'll tell my kids about. I'm going to take a goalie because we haven't gone that direction. So there's obvious guys out there. I mean, we all know Marty Brodeur. We know early in the 2000s, Pat Roy, amongst other guys, but... Mika Kiprasov. Thank you. Yeah. That I was the first say, one. I, I thought mean, you were going to say Turco. I would have thrown up. Oh, Turks was a good goaltender, <laughs> and, and I love Turks. But Kiprasov pretty much for 10 straight years was running it, was always a Vezina finalist, won a Vezina, took his team to the cup finals. That guy was a sick goalie. And the dude played like 80 games a season. Nonstop. Like yeah. they, they had... The, goal, the backup goalies there would never touch the ice. I remember talking to Jamie McLennan about that, how Calgary brought him in because they knew he just had to play about five or six games and be an unbelievable guy in the room. Yeah. And he, he knew he extended his career that way, but he fit that role for him really well because they knew that Mika was just going to go. And the crazy thing about him, he'd wear one set of gear all year. Really? And he would run it into the ground. Oh, yeah. my gosh. By the end of the year, they were, they were just gone. They'd shrunk, and that's what he wore. Uh, Mike, I got a question for you. You mentioned the backup. I, I want to know a little bit of intel on what, what the life is of a backup. I have Brent Johnson, the former Blue, in Pittsburgh. Love him. My rookie season, if a rookie shot over his pad, he would stare you down, and if you scored on him, he'd probably chase you and whack you. But that was kind of old school, was it not? Like Big time. You don't shoot high on backups, especially, or even starters, especially if you're a young player in this league. And and it's funny now, you know, Mike, as you watch pregame skates and practices, and Alex, we do, you see Robert Thomas and rookies, Jordan Kyrus, they come down and just zip it under the bar, oh, yeah. and it's no big deal at all. But for Brent and for a lot of other goaltenders, it was a big deal. Did you ever run across anything like that? Oh, Joe, you're spot on, man. It is open season on goalies in practice now and it's almost like the roles have reversed so the the younger the guy is the more you're worried about him now because they've grown up with this mindset that they have to score every single shot in practice Mm -hmm. and they're wired to do that and goalies have always had so much padding now like guys in brent johnson's age group and my and even Mm -hmm. ours you know like when we were young we were not protected that well and the puck really hurt yeah and it still can but johnny too i think he got a lot of room after he Hit DiPietro with that big flying oh, yeah. left the one night. I don't oh, think anybody baby. was going to mess with him after that. But you're 100% right. I, I was never worried about the older guys in practice. It was always the young guys as I got older buzzing the tower. And, wow. and it was just like, guys, man, come on. Like, let me feel the puck for just the first drill. That was my rule. You give me one drill to lob them in there. After yeah. that, if you hit me, whatever. <laughs> you know what? That DiPietro, that when Brent oh, Johnson yeah. clocked him with the left. So I was in Wilkes-Barre when that happened. I get called up like a month and a half later, and I play my first game against the Kings, and then we go right to the island to play the New York Islanders. And I, I'm getting dressed in my second career game, and I'm not thinking anything of it. All of a sudden, Dan Bilesman comes in the locker room, and he, his, his speech was this. Guys, let's stick together. I don't know what's going to happen tonight. Sometimes these things blow over. Sometimes they don't. Protect yourselves. Protect each other. I'm like tying my skate. I look over at Max Top. I'm like, what is he talking about? And then all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, my God, this is the second game, the next game after Brent Johnson knocked him out. Of course, the rumble in Nassau Coliseum. 
everyone was tossing that game. I got in a fight, I believe, was McDonald. And it was one of those games where if you didn't get a fighting major, like everyone was going to heckle you. You had to get, get kicked out of that game. So, Joey, how many times in your career did you actually feel nervous before a game like that? That you just kind of knew something was going to happen and you had to be on guard? I think probably, a, uh, probably uh, I would say probably a lot. I probably I probably were, was nervous for <laughs> more the games than just not. Every game. <laughs> I mean, the style that did you play in the NHL? <laughs> I mean, close to 300 with playoffs. And I remember at least 200, I would probably, very rarely, maybe towards the end of the career, I, I maybe relaxed a little bit. But but, you know, the way that Tony Granato and, and Dan Bilesman and Ray Shearer wanted me to play in Pittsburgh and, and the way I had to survive in the league was to play that style. But when you do that, these hockey players, as we all know, they have very good memories and they remember what happened the game before or even last year. That's what I recognize a lot. Like stuff I did against the Philadelphia series, uh, won my third or fourth year. The next year we come back, the first game, I have guys like screaming at me. He's like, I didn't forget what you did, Vitaly. Oh, I'm like, God. oh, my God, let it go, man. It was like two years it's ago. Like the Godfather. <laughs> I got a loaf of bread. I'll give you, man. Lay off me. <laughs> Remember when you peed in your pants in third grade? People don't forget. People don't forget. All right, let's take a quick break. It's This Week in Hockey. We got Mike McKenna here in studio, former NHL goaltender, now the television studio pre- and post-game host and analyst for the Las Vegas Golden Knights. He's going to join Joe and I for the rest of this hour. Keep sending the text messages to us because we're getting a lot of good ones. 65780. You can also send us some mic drops on the 101 ESPN app. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this on 101 ESPN. We're back in on this week in hockey. We're going to have some fun until 7 o'clock as Mike McKenna is in studio with us. Of course, the former NHL goaltender. Now he's a part of the Las Vegas Golden Knights broadcast crew. The Blues and Golden Knights in action tomorrow night at Enterprise. 7 o'clock puck drop. A 6 o'clock Mitsubishi Electric pregame show presented by First Community. And last segment, we were talking players from 2000 to 2010. Who you're going to tell your kids that was incredible that you may not be talking a lot about now. And we'll continue to take the text messages throughout the evening. 65780 and also the mic drops. How about this one for you both? Marcus Naslin. He was a stud. Vancouver. Yeah, he was a stud. Which is so weird because it feels like nobody... Taught, you know, Vancouver was such an, a, in a black hole. That for was such a, a guy long time. you got on your fantasy hockey team every year. You wanted yeah. Marcus Naslin on your right. fantasy hockey team. This is what I'm learning about. I never did fantasy until this year. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> well, I was still playing. So like, I, I had this group <laughs> yeah. of friends that were saying every year, as soon as you retire, you're coming. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And now, of course, they wrote me into it. Uh, every day, I'm checking this thing like crazy. Yep. I'm all into it, but it does really help you key in on who's in the league and who's playing yeah. well and what's going on. And it keeps you like interested it, in every single game. I think it's actually helped me, yeah, like on the air and on the broadcast for yeah. sure. It, 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 I feel like times have changed so much. So, like with the kids and all the fantasy, like like whenever I do fantasies, usually they're with my wife, but now everyone <laughs> is just doing fantasies with sports. There and it I, is, Joe. <laughs> I just don't understand. I mean, trust me, my way is better. <laughs> I would agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, three of them. <laughs> Four of them to prove it. <laughs> there you I'd go. say they're much better than the fantasy that everyone else plays along with. Well, Mike, I, I told Joe I, I was excited to talk just St. Louis hockey with you because, of course, you guys came up at the same time. And right now, St. Louis and hockey is booming, of course, with the Stanley Cup. And when you think back to that 2016 draft where, what was it? It was six different players from St. Louis drafted in the first round. But it hadn't always been that way, has it? There, were, there was a select few of guys that grew up with hockey. Like Joe. Joey and our uh, Joey and I, our age group, really kind of broke the door down. I mean, Cam Jansen was the first guy ever from St. Louis. And like, he really broke the door literally down. literally broke the yeah. door down. Good point. <laughs> I mean, every piece of wood in a building he went through to get there. But he was the first guy. And then you had the Stastny brothers and Ben Bishop, uh, myself and Joey and Bolig. And, and 
you know, next thing you know, we're almost approaching two dozen kids, I think, at this point. We had that incredible draft year where all the first-rounders, a goalie, Joseph Wohl, goes in the second round, who's with the Marlies and the American Hockey League for Toronto's system now. It's unbelievable to see the change in it. And for somebody like myself, whose family has been really ingrained in St. Louis hockey ever since the beginning, my grandfather was one of 10 guys that drive to Springfield, Illinois, to find a rink with boards in the 50s wow. and 60s. You know, My dad was on the first youth hockey team. And to see what's happened now, if my grandpa were still alive, he wouldn't believe it. You know, he passed away 20 years ago. I can't keep track at this point, less, more than that. But you go from a city that just really didn't have hockey to in 30 or 40 years gets kind of the precipice of it. And now it's there's no glass ceiling at all whatsoever. Hockey players are coming from everywhere, and you're actually looking at St. Louis as a hot spot because of the quality of coaching uh, and the, the quality of everything that they have, training, you name it here, mm-hmm. specialized coaching, it's it's first class. Well, Mike, I mean, you have two daughters now, and, and now that you're on the, the, the second life of this whole hockey world, I mean, you played, had a great career, and you, you talked about the kids, you talked about your youth, and now, now the youth that we're currently seeing right now, and you're probably at the ring a bunch, and if you haven't gotten these questions, you will be getting, I'm sure you have, but... I'm sure a lot of parents come up to you all the time and, and they look at what their kid can be doing better and they look to pick your brain. I mean, what advice do you have when you talk to these parents about their kids and how they want to just have them just excel in the sport? It just have the more than anything, it's the most simple answer is that they have to be having fun doing it. You can't push them so far outside their comfort zone that they're not having a good time. And really, it's reliant on the coaches to do that in a in a positive way that the kids enjoy, so that they can get in the car with their parents, and the parents just ask them, "Hey, how how today go?" You know, mm-hmm. and and maybe ask them, "What did what do you think you did well today?" You know, and and you don't ever want to dig too far in on that because that relationship can be really fragile. And we've all seen guys in pro hockey, right, Joey, that have had tough relationships with parents before mm-hmm. that they they come to to really hold a grudge against their parents mm-hmm. of how they've done things. So. They have to have fun with it. Support them how they want to do it. You know, if if the kid only thinks that he wants to do one or two days a week and that's it, whatever. If that's his age, you know, and if they have that burning desire as they get older and you have the means to do it, by all means, you know, support them in that way. Um, but I, I think we're at a point in St. Louis now where we've got such a good structure in place of coaching that you can be very hands off and just let the let them take care of this. And enjoy the ride with your kids. Yeah, you can almost you know? be a spectator. You know, my son, he's playing at Kirkwood right now, learn to play, and and these coaches do such a good job in St. Louis. It's amazing. I think it started with, you know, Kika Chucks and the Al is sticking around, and everyone is just kind of fed off that momentum. But as parents, you know, you can almost be just spectators, and you can really just enjoy the fun things of hockey practices. Like when I grew up, you know, I'm similar to Mike and his dad. They had a great relationship. I looked forward to going to Dunkin' Donuts before our 5 a.m. practices at Afton. Like, that was my thing, because Dunkin' Donuts opened up at 4 at the time. We got my hot chocolate and my, like, 10 donuts, and I would just scarf these things down the way to Afton. But it was my favorite memories, and now my son and I, we do the same thing. Yeah. You know, we wake up about 45 minutes early, and my, my Harper comes up to me. He's like, Dad, Dunkin' D's, let's go, baby. Nice. We get, we get in the car. We get our donuts. He gets his hot cocoa. I get my, like, 8,000-shot espresso just to kind of get through the day, and we make our way off the rink, and we can just be dads because the coaching here is so great. Yeah, that's the cool part, man. We would always go to Velvet Freeze in Kirkwood. That that's was our awesome. place afterwards. Yeah. We'd get ice cream afterwards, and then Friday morning hockey or whatever. It was, it, maybe it was an early morning Kirkwood practice. Mm-hmm. We used to go to the Kirkwood Bakery, pick up Danishes. Those are my favorite memories. Big time. And my dad was the most hands-off guy ever. You know, he won national championships in auto racing. He played D three baseball. He he 
incredible athlete, but you would have never known it. And when he'd come to watch me play, he'd get a pack of M&Ms and he'd get as far away from all the rest of the parents as he could. Mm-hmm. And he'd just Smart go stand dad. in the corner, yep. you know, and, and he never at, at any point in my life pushed me to do anything that I didn't want to at all. It was just purely support, uh, and I was so thankful that it was like that between us. What do you guys think, and I've always thought, I've never been a pro athlete, obviously, but I've always thought it's it's crucial for kids when they're into sports or we're getting into sports to play more than just one. I mean, you're seeing a lot of guys, or not guys, but kids, focus on one sport and do that select sport. And, Mike, it seems like the athletes find more success when they play numerous sports and try and decide as they're playing them. Well, they learn to be athletes when they do that, right? not just a specialized uh, athlete. You know, when you learn to use your hands, to use your brain, to, to be in sync and coordinated and do all those different things, in the long run, that helps with all that you're doing. I played baseball, I played tennis, I raced go-karts, I played hockey. As you get older, you have to pick what works best. Right. That's what happens. You know, I get to 14. I mean, Joey, I know you played football as well, too, amongst other things. But for me, that's what it was, that my hand-eye was built so much from the foundation of playing tennis and baseball and enjoying other things. Right. I never got burnt out on hockey. I loved it. I used to go in the basement and shoot pucks endlessly because I loved doing it. I didn't feel like it was a chore. I didn't have to do it. So I was refreshed when I'd go play these other sports, especially summertime. And then when it came winter, I was all in. I got to play hockey. This was my thing. The only time I'd play summer hockey was if I'd go and play forward or defense instead of goaltender. And I still do that today. I play, uh, play out once or twice a week just for the fun of it. It's like a different sport for me. Well, I think the other thing, too, to consider when they're starting to find a lot more studies are coming out, when you have a, a kid who is more specific to one sport over a long period of time, they actually have they end up having more injuries down mm-hmm. the road because they're so sport-specific, where, you know, hockey stride is it, it's working certain uh, dimensions of a, a quad muscle that maybe if you don't work in soccer or baseball or lacrosse or, or, or any other kind of sport where, to Mike's point, if you are more athletic and your body and your joints and your muscles move in all different kinds of directions, you prevent injuries uh, mike i had a goalie question for you and, and i asked all goalies this uh, why are goalies so weird there it is man <laughs> i've, I've had it. this like as... what is the th- what is what why like why i mean you're well, fair you're, I'm you're fairly normal, normal. you've ever met right not for a goalie yeah. before no, mike goes I'm... further with this so define weird <laughs> um space cadet on their own island like connor Hellbuck weird or jordan bennington weird uh, just different. They're Quirky just different. fits the bill. You Quirky. know what? The, you know what the most common word is though. Really, for a lot of us, was creative, and that's why we sometimes come across as that. A lot of times, like the goalies are kind of like the, like the goofy emo art kid in the corner in some ways. You know, like that's that's in his own world to a certain extent because yeah. that's how we are in the crease. Mm-hmm. We're on an island out there. Oh yeah. You know, and it can be lonely. Uh, but look at why we're drawn to the position in the first place. We all love the gear. Yeah. We all want to design the gear. We want to paint the mask. It's a very creative and expressive position. And that's probably why so many of us end up doing media work yep. afterwards. And we mm-hmm. also see everything in front of us. So it's easy like that. And you have to be self-deprecating, too, as a goalie. If you take yourself too seriously, it's it can be really tough for yourself, for your teammates, too. You've got to be able to take that, to shoulder that load, to laugh at yourself, to, to fall in with the team. But we do have that rap. I mean, we had guys who used to jump over blue lines and talk to their posts and be incredibly superstitious, mm-hmm. which is true for a lot of players. But for goalies, when you're the guy out there in the mask, it gets it's a bigger version, right? You Everybody want, sees it. You want intimidation. It's the dude that's talking to the post by himself. 
Like, that's intimidation for you. That's kind of like a, if you know you're getting in a fight, you hit yourself over there with a frying pan so the other guy thinks you're crazy. Kind of that logic, that's you know exactly what I mean? exactly what it is. Right. I, I so, would knock myself out. <laughs> Joey hits himself, then just drops. That's how you take yourself out of a fight then, too. <laughs> That'd be the 300 concussion. Ding! And Joey's down. We're talking with Joe Vitale, Mike McKenna, as we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more of This Week in Hockey here on 101 ESPN. Back in Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Blues conversation until 8 o'clock tonight, although we're not really talking Blues. We're just talking hockey as we got Mike McKenna here in studio. Of course, part of the Las Vegas Golden Knights broadcast team. He's in St. Louis for the Golden Knights and Blues game tomorrow night. 7 o'clock puck drop, 6 o'clock Mitsubishi Electric pregame show here on 101 ESPN. And I promise we'll get into some Blues and Vegas Golden Knights talk. I'm curious, though, and I want both of your opinions. Mike, we'll start with you. Of the group of guys that you grew up with, so, of course, Joe Vitale, Cam Jansen, you know, even Pat Maroon, who was the one that you knew was going to be in the NHL? And you could say yourself, because Joe no, probably will. I had no, I never thought I'd make it. I didn't even know how to make it to You're college hockey. It's a junior. I, I just kind of kept progressing in ways like that. Right. I think that was more true of the older group of myself. That we didn't really know how to do it. But I, I think of, we all thought the Stastny brothers were really good. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, but we know we didn't know. Like, how are you going to make the NHL when yeah. nobody's made it from here? That's yeah. what we were all kind of thinking, or I was at least. Right. But the first person I thought really had a chance that, to me, seemed like this is an NHL build, skill set, right track, was actually Chris Butler. Yeah. Wow. He was in the age group where, since we'd already made it, the door was broke a little bit, and people knew the track to get there. And he went to college, I believe, on time. Unless he, he may have spent one year a junior out of high school. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. But he goes pretty much on time. Uh, he's drafted. He signs a year early. That's when I started to think, there's something going on here. Right. You know, there, there's a real way to do this. And Chris was the total package from a young age. Mm -hmm. He was built. He was big, strong, moved the puck well. And, you know, and he ended up having five, six years of full-time NHL, I guess, before yeah. transitioning into his role with the Blues afterwards. Uh, and doing up and down call ups and winning a Stanley Cup last year, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he was a guy that I thought, though, this is this is can't mess. He's wow. going to be him. Yeah, you know, I thought the Stasnys were just because of the name, but I I was an '85 birth year with Paul, and you know we were best buddies and we grew up together. And you know, you know, Paul and Mike, I think would agree. I think you cannot disagree at this point. But Paul probably is going to be the greatest St. Louis product in the NHL of all time up to this point. Wow. I mean, there's really no one that comes close. Unless Clayton Keller plays for 15 years. Yeah, or Matthew Kachuk. to progress or the Kachuk brothers. But right now, right now, it's without question. 700 points for him, 700 points for his dad. Yeah. Well, and if you his think entire of, family, 2,400 points. If you think of his, his career in Colorado before he came to St. Louis, and not that St. Louis fell apart for him, but the injuries kicked in. But Colorado... You could argue he was a number one center in the entire National Hockey League. Yeah, oh, I would agree, Alex. And the funniest thing is, you know, growing up with him here, he was always so slow. Like he was, he and he still is slow. He he's never had good feet. And you know, when you're young, you know, speed really kills. Like the fast players prevail, and and the slow players just fall behind. And Paul, for the longest time. He was always kind of a player under the radar. He never really stood out, though, but it wasn't until he went to go play junior in Omaha, and then he went to Denver, then it just literally exploded. And And I always tell people that, too, that, you know, keep, you know, just until puberty, I think that, you know, developmentally, like it's, you know, there, there, there takes time sometimes. And for Paul, he was one of those late bloomers. You know, for me, it was always Cam Jansen because I played up with the 84s. Uh, Cam was just a guy 
that you knew nothing was going to stop him. He would kill anyone to get there, like literally kill anyone. He still might. You know, Cam reminded me of an old man who was like on his deathbed and just he had one more chance at life. Like someone gave him like a magic wand, say, listen, you could do it all over again. Boof. And he transformed into like this 13-year-old body and nothing was going to stop him. Like he was just on a mission every game. The intensity in his eyes, uh, his aggressiveness, like he just brought it every single day. And, and you know, fearless, I don't like to throw that word around a lot because I think everyone feels fear. I think, you know, courage is just something that you, you have to have in order to overcome fear. I think Cam was actually fearless. Like I don't think he was afraid of anyone, which to me was the trait which I always thought since we were kids that he would eventually make it to the National Hockey League. You got, you got to understand, Cam came into the North American Hockey League, which was junior hockey, 16 to 20 years old. He came in at 16 years old when that was a, that was a very small group of kids. There were very few 16-year-olds. You had the U.S. Development Program and a handful of other kids, and they were all really, really skilled and maybe a goalie or two. And then there was Cam. And Cam scored goals, too, and when he was younger in youth hockey, when you played together. He walked into the North American League, and there's stories of him going right up to the red line to guys on CompuWare that are 21 years old and going, hey, I hear you're a tough guy. So am I. We're going, you know. And he's fighting guys who are five years older, probably five inches tall, bigger, and he's just hanging in there, and, and he's fighting everybody. And the determination that he had to make it, we always – I mean – we knew it was there. It was just how do you find that path? And that season with the Sting, he fought everybody in the North American League, led him to the OHL, where he fought everybody in the OHL. You get the eye of Lou Lamorello and the Devils. They take a liking to him, his work ethic. And he'd come to work goalie camps for me, and Cam would be out there working on his stick handling nonstop, a half hour beforehand. And this is late in his career even. you know, wow. That's how dedicated he was to improving himself and trying to make sure he could stay in the game and do his job. I have all the respect in the world for Cam. He, he still does it on Tuesday mornings at yeah. Yeah. Webster Arena at 6 a.m. I've heard he walks into the locker room and says, all right, who's going to ruin my night tonight, huh? With his shirt off. Yeah. With his shirt off. <laughs> and then he grades honest. everyone at the end of the skate. Like, everyone's getting their suits on. They have jobs. Like, we have jobs. And he is going around and critiquing people. But he's hilarious. One of the most loyal, uh, loyal guys out yeah. there, for sure. I just wish he would have kept his high school Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see a picture of that with Cam Jansen. Again, we're talking with Mike McKenna and Joe Vitale here. It's This Week in Hockey. Alex Ferrari with you. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Mike. And, of course, St. Louis fans have gotten a taste of Joe Vitale for over a year now. But how's the transition been into the broadcast world? So I feel very fortunate that I did. Um, but, you know, also I'm glad that what I did to prep for it paid off you right. know and, and I was still able to focus on playing hockey so it's been a huge learning curve at times um, the sport itself has so many things that you don't know from just the playing side and on the broadcasting right so whether it's learning about your camera looks or how to build kind of a script for a pre-show and how to prep properly you know that's right. one thing I did before was I probably early I probably over prepped and I was kind of scripting things out until I got some good advice to, to just make a couple bullet points and expand on it, you know, use mm -hmm. your personality. So there's, there's a lot of intricacies, but it's, um, it's been fun to learn something new and to have a new challenge because I've been a goalie for so long. Right. And, and I still am. I practice with them on occasion. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Marc-Andre Fleury wants a day off in practice and I'm in Vegas. I get to hop in the cage, but, uh, <laughs> but the broadcast side has been, been a, a, a lot of learning, a lot of fun. Is he not the greatest human being of all time? 
this guy's unbelievable. He, he is like, though. Officially, I'm jealous of you getting to actually share a locker room with him. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been on the ice. We've we've talked a fair amount at this point. He's always smiling. Everybody on that team would do anything for the guy. And he is a sick goalie on top of it. Yeah. You know, he's got everything going for him like that. Very nice Lamborghini. You know, like, <laughs> um, but He drives around Vegas all the time. Is it yeah. the yellow one still? It's black now. Oh, we got a new black um, one. Okay. Yeah. But, man, it, it he's he is. He's the best. Like, in, in every sense of the word, he's just a great person. Like, the way he plays – to the, to the way he acts off the ice and in public and everything. He's he's the dream player for what you could want for your organization. Yeah. Well, Mike, we're going to let you go. We know you're here in St. Louis with your wife. You're going to go enjoy some city. And uh, Joe Vitale and I were talking. You're a foodie. We haven't gotten into that. So oh, you're yeah, about to yeah. enjoy yourself. Yeah, well, Joey and I run in the same circles, you know. <laughs> like, Joey more so than I do any longer. But, you know, if you ever get to enjoy that bread program over at Cinder House, I know somebody who had something to do with it. I did. So, that was before uh, the Blues came calling. I was working the bakery at Cinder uh, House. I haven't There's, had any Joe Vitale bread yet. So. Well, you're Joey the baker, man. He makes a mean sourdough. Oh, my, wife, my wife, I got a call from the Blues. I said, well, honey, I got this thing going on. I'm making bread at Cinder House or the Blues call me for this job. She's like, I think you should take the job with the Blues. I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> rightfully so. Yeah. Need to make the real dough. Yeah, go get yeah. the real dough. Go get the real dough, honey. You still have the dough up in the attic, right? Oh, I still got it up there. Yeah. I got my, I got my yeast going up there. He's got the backup <laughs> just in case. You don't worry about my yeast. I'll take care of my yeast. <laughs> That's got to be some type of pun. We're gonna figure that out as we move along. Mike, thank you so much for stopping in. It's great to see you. We'll see you at the rink tomorrow night. That sounds good. Anytime when I'm in town. There Thanks you go. For having me. That's Thanks, Mike, Mike McKenna, the studio analyst for the Las Vegas Golden Knights. We'll take another break. We'll come back for the second hour of this week in hockey. We got another. Coaching being fired in the NHL, so we'll talk about that next on 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Wednesday night, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale. Big thank you to Mike McKenna and his wife, Rachel, for uh, stopping in and hanging out with us this evening. Always great to catch up with uh, another St. Louis product, and I know a good friend of Joe Vitale's. And uh, Joe, I was telling you during the break, he's one of those guys that you root for in the NHL, and I was hoping that something stuck when he was in the NHL and then back to the AHL. And unfortunately it didn't, but uh, it's one of those guys that now you're even happier for because he's in the broadcast world. Well, he got a wonderful job with Vegas doing the pre and post. And I know travel has you know, been tough for him, but uh, you're absolutely right. You know, Alex, someone you, you root for, someone you, I, I grew up personally with, and uh, he's just played the game the right way throughout yep. the whole bit and has treated people correctly uh, throughout it as well, which is a very, very tough thing to do. And you see how a lot of players just don't do that. So Mike is uh, a treasure here in St. Louis, uh, an icon, a legacy. And, you know, I think he's got some big things coming up for him in the broadcast world because he does a wonderful job on TV for the Vegas well, Golden Knights. We didn't even get to talk to him about other things, but it's like I had. A, I wish I would have been able to get the chance to talk to him about the backup towel. I mean, he was the backup goaltender with a towel around his neck on yeah. the bench. And then now you see guys doing that in the NHL all yeah, the time. I know. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, he spent a lot of games uh, not only playing, but being that backup. That's why I love to kind of pick his brain as far as that backup goaltender because it's, it's not a position for everyone. No. You got to be one of those older, like Hudobin, you know, Jake Allen kind of players who really kind of embrace it and and to know what the ins and outs of it are. So uh, we figure we need to get into some news. And while we're talking with Mike McKenna, some news broke in the National Hockey League. Of course, we all know the the coaches being fired right now. And uh, Gary Bettman released a four point conduct plan a couple of days ago at the Board of Governors meeting, and we just found out currently that Pete DeBoer was fired from the San Jose Sharks or relieved of duties. And the report is that it has nothing to do with this code of conduct and basically the treatment of players throughout their coaching career. But, Joe, 
as we've seen Mike Babcock and Bill Peters and Jim Montgomery, and now you got Pete DeBoer, it's hard to sit there and believe that it has nothing to do with what's going on behind the curtains because right now coaches are dropping like flies because of their past. Well, it, it is crazy. I mean, I don't, San Jose, to me, I kind of saw that news and I was like, whoa, San Jose Sharks went on an absolute tear in November, and they did. They won 11 of a 13, and they kind of got themselves back in the mix here. But as of late, because I haven't been really following them because they're out in the Pacific and we haven't seen them much, uh, but they have dropped the last five. So, you know, and they started off the season really slow too. To me, I I don't know. I think that, you know, you see GMs and and it says they're not, it's not player abusive related. You know, to me, I think of all of them, to me, this one kind of sounds like it really isn't player related. This is really just from a production standpoint, he's just not getting the job done. And I think that uh, November, December, early December, if you're going to make a push for the playoffs, you got to get rid of your coach now because, you know, time is ticking and you got to be in a position to make a push come January, early January. So the San Jose Sharks have about half a month left before they got to kind of turn this thing around. And and you see how assistants have been taken over and having success. Look what happened there in Dallas. Yeah. Um, you, you have Keith over here in Toronto who's done a good job since he's taken and over. How about as well. Jeff Ward in Calgary, 6 and 0 in Jeff six games. Ward, I mean, you know what I mean? So you see the effect of maybe a different voice and players wanting to play under a a head coaching situation, but the San Jose Sharks are loaded up. They got skill. They got two of the best defensemen in the National Hockey League with Carlson and Brent Burns. They have a great core. Joe Thornton's time is ticking. This could be his last year before a complete revamp. You lose Pavelski. So, you know, it's it's a, a situation. I know Peter DeBoer is a, a great coach. He's very well respected in the league. I can't imagine anything has happened with him yeah. in regards to, like, any bullying or racism because he just doesn't seem like that type of guy from the little I know him. But, you know, San Jose is, is, is joining the party as far as trying to turn the season around. And the first step to do it is always get rid of your head coach. Well, and the Dallas Stars were very, very solid on the fact that Jim Montgomery's firing had nothing to do with abuse, whether it was verbal or physical, towards any players. But that's kind of where we're at right now in the NHL, Joe. And as I mentioned, Gary Bettman talked about his four-point plan uh, when it comes to the conduct policy, and he released it at the Board of Governors meeting. And really, he's getting on top and in front of everything that's been going on. So we're going to kind of take you through this four-point plan. So here's the first point from Gary Bettman talking about a zero-tolerance policy. So basically he's talking about the verbal abuse that has come out and physical abuse from Mike Babcock and Bill Peters and the racism that has come out with the reports from Akima Lou talking about his time playing for Bill Peters. And to be honest with you, Joe, I'm hearing him talk about this and you can speak to this because you've been in many, in many locker rooms in the NHL. I'm wondering if this changes hockey locker rooms because it seems like it's going to put players and coaches where they feel like they're walking on eggshells yeah I think I think it will and you know to Gary Bettman's first point I think it's a great first point and I think that every team in the National Hockey League now uh, understands what the protocol is if you remain silent and you know something's going on with your head coach or a player within your organization and if you don't report it to the league you will be uh, severely disciplined as he said you know, the timing of it is interesting because they, they have this this breaks. He comes out, he makes this public, and then the Dallas Stars and Jim Neal get rid of Jim Montgomery. Yeah. Whether that his speech and what he had to say had something to affect the Dallas Stars, maybe, maybe not. I just think the timing is interesting because the Dallas Stars could have looked at him and like, whoa, well, from here on out, this is the protocol, and if we don't stand up and say something now, we could be, you know, they could be coming at the GM, they can be coming at the owners. So um, so that, that that is the first point. But to your point, Alex, 
you know, the locker rooms, I think, will change a little bit. I think the the players will police themselves in the way that they find necessary. And I know we can get this is coming up here in like the fourth point, which he's talking about the annual meetings and um, what they're going to be done as far as the education moving forward for players and coaches alike. But this this will this will disturb uh, yeah. the culture a little bit. I like to think it's going to disturb it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. You know, hockey. I, I've always valued it and loved it because it it was so rugged and hardcore, and it's an intense game, and you got to have intense personalities, and sometimes you need to be motivated from an intense standpoint. Um, I think that will back off a little bit. I do, and I think that um, this game will get a little bit softer in that sense. But I, I don't think it could be a bad thing. I think it could be positive, and we just have to kind of spin this into a positive direction because if you want a game where the scoring's up, and, I mean, the fighting's already down. I mean, so the intensities, so much of the game, but the intensity of it all has kind of already backed up a lot. Yeah. So, But I, I do see this moving forward, coaches watching what they're saying. If I'm Craig Berube, I'm more careful. T- to me, the question really comes is, you know, where's the line? Right. I mean, that is the million-dollar question because what Bill Peters did, of course, it's over the line. I think anytime you, you physically abuse a player, like if Mike Babcock kicks someone, th- th- that is over the line. You know, I don't know what Jim Montgomery did. I don't know if Peter DeBoer did anything. You know, but, you know, at some point you have to establish what is appropriate and what is not. If someone does something on their own personal time that's not affecting the coaches or the team or anyone of that nature – is that crossing the line if it's deemed inappropriate behavior? So, I mean, you know, you know, what I'm trying to say. Well, like, even the Mike Babcock thing gets me. And look, I understand what what has come out of, you know, him verbally abusing players and making players not want to play for him. But I don't know if it what what Mike Babcock did warranted him being let go. Yeah. Because what Bill Peters did, yeah, there's there's no mm-hmm. call for racism or physical abuse on the bench. But what Mike Babcock did is what Mike Keenan did. Yeah. It's what the Sutter brothers did throughout their times. As Maybe not so much Brian, but I know Daryl Sutter, there were some reports out that he mistreated players. Mm-hmm. But that was a style of coaching for yeah. those guys, and some players adhere to it, some don't. But I don't know if it's a fireable offense. So to me, that was my biggest question. Where's the line here? Because all it's going to take is one player yeah. anonymously calling the NHL and saying, oh, well, I'm being spoken to poorly by my head coach. Yeah. Do we have a problem? Yeah. Or is that not the line that warrants Gary Bettman's ear? Well, and everyone's got a past. And mm-hmm. that's what I mean. Like, Alex, someone can come after you for probably something you did way back in your past. Hey, this guy said something to me back there. No, I'm an angel. Oh, you're of course, yeah. yeah. Well, hey, Joey bullied me on the playground in eighth grade, and he, he called me a whatever. Like, Curbs like, call me man boobs. Can yeah. I call the NHL for that? Yeah, I mean, Curbs all over you all the time. You should probably call the NHL about that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, to yeah. me, and, and that comes back to the question, where is the line? Right. I mean, what is deemed, okay, that's part of his past, uh, that's acceptable, or that's part of his past, and that's unacceptable, and we need to move forward in a new direction. So that, that to me, is, is something that Gary Bettman needs to figure out. Well, and I'm going to skip ahead here because Gary Bettman did talk a little bit about the coaches' clinic, but we're going to move past the coaches' clinic. And look, the coaches' clinic is basically just education for head coaches, assistant coaches, minor league coaches coaches basically anybody who's involved in the national hockey league they're going to go through some toward some sort of education on growing the game and avoiding this abusive situation but here's the part that the with my other question was joe what is considered severe discipline from gary bettman and here's gary talking about that so severe punishment we've seen in the nhl is you know a 25 game suspension without pay we've seen guys kicked out for a half of a season mm-hmm. 
But I don't know if we've seen severe punishment like Gary Bettman's talking about. No, I don't think so. And, and to me, severe is you lose your job. You know, yeah. to me, is you, and the team suffers because of it. And the team suffers, and and you may not get back into the league. You may be exiled from the league. To me, that's severe. Like Bill Peters, I can't see him having a job anymore no. in the National Hockey League. Uh, Jim Montgomery, I, we don't know what happened yet. But for Jim Nil to drop it like a bomb like that, I mean, to me, that's severe enough yeah. where you let him go. I don't know if he. And these are lives and families yeah. that are affected by this. So to me. That is uh, severe, Alex. You know, I, it, it again. It it really just comes back full circle to to what what is that line? And you know, are we going to see coaches that are going to start taking suspensions because of things said or done? I mean, this is what happened with the concussions. Remember, right? So the concussions come out. They want to make the game safer. They have the annual meetings. The coaches view it. The players sign off on it. Everyone understands. They want to make the game safer, and the game has become a lot safer. And it has been done through because they know that. The best way to get the message across for the players is you go to their wallet. They start taking money away. They start suspending them. Five, 10, 20-game suspensions were all over the place, and now those have limit, limited it a little bit. Is that the kind of uh, disciplinary action that Gary Bettman has in mind where if if something is heard or a, a microphone is on the bench and you hear a coach say something that maybe is a little bit offensive to a player or attacks his character, is that like a three-game suspension or right. a five-game suspension? I mean – so I, I it, to me it's it's a lot of um, it's murky water at this point. It I does agree. need to be uh, crystallized and clarified a little bit. Uh, but I think Gary Bettman's doing a good job. I think his statement was was spot on. I thought it was perfect. And I think this is going to take some time to kind of iron out the details of it. But I do like the approach and I like where this thing is is going. Here's the final one from Gary before we break, talking about uh, basically the creation of a hotline for players, coaches, somebody a part of the organization, so that they can get in front of this. So this one's intriguing too, Joe, uh, because again, it goes back to the eggshell factor of being in a locker room because you don't, I mean, what happens if just one player is unhappy Yeah, where it's not so much the extreme of racism or physical abuse, where it's just a player that feels like he's not being treated correctly by a coach or what happens if you get exaggeration? I think this is the part that's going to be the very gray area for Gary Bettman in the NHL. I, I agree because I think, you know, as the hockey players and a lot of sports across the board have always said, what, what happens in the room stays in the room. Listen, the locker room is a very sacred place. I mean, you will have guys next to you, you sweat through battle. They will cut you so deep from a humorous standpoint about stuff going on in your lives to make you laugh and crack up. And at the same time, uh, while they will humble you in the locker room, they will go out there and they will fight alongside you and protect you. So it's a very, uh, very interesting um, uh, dynamic in a locker room. And it's something I miss from the game uh, a lot. What is said in there has always stayed in there in Mm -hmm. my mind, good, bad, and, and the very ugly. And there has been a lot of ugly you know, there's been players throughout my career that uh, have gone off to their wives and have said certain things that have happened in the locker room with some players that has gotten back to the players. It has hurt relationships, and those players have been traded because of those instances. So, again, it, it does come back to the, the integrity of the locker room. You know, so as much as you want to protect that integrity, again, there are certain things that you cannot say and probably cannot do that things you do need to speak up about. So it all comes full circle again. What is the line? Yeah. I mean, where where do you draw the line? I think racist remarks, that is over the line. That yeah. that has to be, as a player, you have to come forward and say, this is what happened, whether it's some coach in the league or a player in the league still. I, I do think that that has to come forward. Um, you know, then the flip side is, Alex, do we just start a clean slate right here? Yeah. Do we forget about the past? Because the past is the past. 
And do you do you realize that you know 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago the world was very different? We were a much uh, more sexist world. We were much more of a racist of world. Uh, back in the day, we have grown significantly as a human race since then. So do we start? Uh, from square one right now. So uh, maybe that's another debate for another day, too. Yeah, and that's going to be kind of the area that you're focusing on moving forward in the NHL. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. It is This Week in Hockey here on a Wednesday night. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and get you a little update on some injured players. A few of them skated today at practice. So we'll talk about those players and what that could look like for the team moving forward next here on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you. Blues in action tomorrow night. 7 o'clock puck drop against the Las Vegas Golden Knights as they're finally home for a nice homestand. Four games. They start 12 straight against the Western Conference. And Joe Vitale, they're hopefully getting some reinforcements back. It is no question that this team has dealt with injuries. I would say they've been one of the most plagued teams in the National Hockey League due to injuries this season. I know the Pittsburgh Penguins have gone through an awful lot. But in terms of the Western Conference, the Blues have suffered a lot. And it looks to be, at least on this homestand, they're going to get two, maybe three of those guys back. And Sanford, Sunquist, and Alexander Steen. Yeah, it would appear that way. You know, Alex, I I love the fact that Alexander Steen joined the Blues to Buffalo on the road trip. To me, that's a sign that he's close. Oscar Sunquist was on the road trip as well. Zach Sanford was not a part of the road trip, but because of the upper body, and I saw him the other day, doesn't look as severe as they once thought as well so you look at two three possibly in this next homestand hopefully before the new year and the blues are starting to kind of come back a little bit and they're going to need these bodies i think they're going to need the five on five scoring i think they're going to need the leadership from steam they're going to need the speed and the aggressiveness and just the the accountability hockey from oscar sunquist a player you can put out in all positions of the game and and I think five-on-five score, I think David Perron and Ryan O'Reilly can use a little bit of a nudge by having their old winger back in Zach Sanford. So three guys right there that you look at in this group that can contribute right away. And, and this Blues team has stayed afloat very well given the injuries. And we're not even talking about Vladimir Tarasenko, who we're not mm-hmm. going to see here for a long time. But you miss a lot of good, good players throughout this stretch here. And the Blues have, have done a good job maintaining their head just above water. I think another player that, that's truly missed right now is Sammy Blay. And I, I think you're still about five, six weeks away from where that uh, evaluation period was for St. Louis. I do know that he has gotten at least on the ice, uh, but it's nothing to where he's close to returning. But I, I think he's another one, Joe, that they're, they're really in dire need of because they're really they're really missing the forcefulness, the power forward, the guy who finishes the checks and creates space out there on the ice. Well, I think the energy, I think the energy that Sammy Blay brings to the game is um, very important. And not only the energy throughout a game, but, you know, to start the game and to finish a game. You know, Oscar Sundquist, Alexander Steen, those guys are closers in games, are closers in periods. Sammy Blay is a player that Craig Ruby loves to start games with. You look at these last three games, Alex, I wrote a couple numbers down, and an area for the Blues that they have struggled with over the last three throughout this three-game losing skid has been early in games, early in periods, and late in periods, and late in games. Uh, I'm going to run this through this really quickly here, but going back three games ago in Pittsburgh, the Penguins scored 39 seconds into the game from Bluger. You have uh, Nason, who scored uh, with 40 seconds to go in the second period. Uh-huh. Those, those are deflators at, right as you go into the intermission. Uh, Toronto, two minutes in, Hyman scores on home ice. That's something that really kind of puts you back. And the Buffalo Sabres the other night, you know, 18 seconds into the game, Reinhardt's on the board. And then with the 1-1 game heading into the third, you're going on the road. You got a 1-1 game. You got 10 seconds remaining in the second period. And then Larson scores. So with 10 seconds to go in that second period. So an area of the game where... 
you, you can see the deflated energy where the Blues need to get revamped and these injuries and guys return from injuries are going to help is early in periods and then in late in periods where the Blues have not only been giving up momentum, but they're giving up games. Yeah, to me, that that is a characteristic trait. It's a habit of when, when you don't start well, you're not on your toes because you're not energized. And then to finish these periods, you, you, you have a drifting focus, I would call it, uh, away from what you need to do to be successful. And that comes from having energy and having the veterans in the lineup to know that you know you got you got you got this game on the line. You know, Alexander Steen said to me uh, right before he loaded the bus last night in Buffalo. You know, you're looking at that game last night. You're one to one. You're mm-hmm. in Buffalo. You're right about to head into the third period. You got a one-to-one game. Let's call that a victory. You got one period, 20 minutes to go out there and just get one shot and win this game, a tough-fought road game on the road. And and the Blues kind of had that drifting focus late in that second period. And then Larson took advantage after he been, beat Vince Dunn off the wall right there and put Buffalo up 2-to-1. And the Blues just were always playing catch-up. And right now they are playing catch-up because of that not being on your toes early on in periods and kind of having that drifting focus late in periods and late in games. Do you think Alexander Steen could be one of the more influential forwards to get back because of that leadership and because of, honestly, I think you need some voices on the bench right now. Big time. The voices on the bench. I mean, Alexander Steen in last night's game, with, with a minute to go, you know, he's probably out there. But even if he's not out there, you know, he's a guy standing up on the bench. Boys, keep it simple. Let's get to this third period. Chip it out. Chip it in. Let's, you know, do the right things we need to do. You know, you see a blue line, you put it in. If you see our blue line, get it the heck out of the zone. Alexander Steen is a, one of the vocal presences of this group. A quiet team. You know, a quiet team, rightfully so, spoke, spoke, you know, and we have uh, players on this team have told us that. Coaches on this team have told us that. This is a relatively quiet bench, but Alexander Steen is one of those players that really does carry the vocals and, and carry the mindset, and, and players look up to him. When Alexander Steen stands up and talks, it's different than if maybe a rookie stands up and talks right. or, or a player in their second year stands up and says, come on, boys, let's go. When Alexander Steen says it, you know, a player does it. I think the, the veteran presence, the vocals, and not only that, but he's playing some really good hockey right before he got hurt. He was dominating playing second, third line minutes, and Craig Ruby always loves going back to him on that fourth line. But you got the veteran presence coming back soon. Oscar Sundquist, uh, the dependable line, as as Craig Berube yeah. always would say with Oscar out there, you put him out in any situation. Ivan Barbashev is still humming along. Those three guys alone are going to help you tremendously, not to mention Zach Sanford joining the Rhino Rod, David Perron line, and, and Sammy Blay a little ways away, but uh, certainly a player that is, is greatly missed from this lineup. What do you think the roster decisions are going to look like, Joe? Because that to me, that's going to be a big decision for Doug Armstrong because you're at the Max Mott roster right mm-hmm. now because of the injuries. You return Sanford, you return Steen, you return Sunquist. That's three guys that come back. To me, you know one of them is going to be Austin Pagansky that heads down. But then you got two other decisions to be made, which in my eyes, you got three guys you got to make the decision with. Is it going to be Troy Brower, who you signed from the PTO? Is it going to be Nathan Walker, who you have to put on, uh, I believe, waivers? He has to clear he has to go clear waivers, yeah. Or is it going to be Cairo again, who has pretty much dominated the AHL, and you want to give him a shot in the NHL? Well, you know, Cairo does not need to clear waivers, so that's kind of gives you a little bit of flexibility there. But if he continues to play well, how do you I'm, send him down? You got to keep him up, right? right? I mean, I thought he looked really good the other night, and that was it was one game. Uh, you know, Nathan Walker, throw him in the mix as well, uh, right there too, because he had three. 
you know, direct and, and great games when he came up. And I think they lacked his energy last night. And they lacked his energy last night. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see him back in the lineup. Uh, maybe Austin Pagansky, although he played very well. But decisions, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. players starting to get healthy. You got a lot of guys in the bubble. I mean, Troy Brower, who, who you signed, I think they want to keep him here. I, I do, would too. think so because of, it's you know. Another, it's another leader. This is why you brought him here. So, to me, he's almost uh, maybe outside the bubble just a little bit. Uh, the Nathan Walkers, the Jordan Kyrus, the Austin Pagansky's. Uh, keep an eye on Mackenzie McEachern. Yeah. You know, and, th- and that that's a guy that if Jordan Cairo comes in, he, Mackenzie McEachern could get bumped. He may need clear waivers, which uh, is unfortunate because I think he will get picked up from someone. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if you have to look at it. If, it, if it's a decision between Troy Brower and Mackenzie McEachern, I mean, which way do you go? And again, this is all return tomorrow. Now there's a possibility Oscar Sundquist could return tomorrow but Doug Craig Berube said that that's kind of up in the air so we'll have to see uh, when those guys do return. He's Joe Vitale I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a quick break we'll come back. There's a uh, powerhouse going on right now in the Eastern Conference not only in general but also currently in a game. So Joe and I will touch on that and a couple of other news and notes around the NHL next here on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. It's courtesy of the Boston Bruins Radio Network. Welcome back into This Week in Hockey. Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario with you. And there is a uh, juggernaut going at it right now. The Boston Bruins and the Washington Capitals, two of the top three teams in the Eastern Conference going head-to-head. And it was Boston on top one to nothing. But T.J. Oshie scores back-to-back goals in, I believe, three minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, Joe, watching these two teams play each other, I told you during the break, I think this is your Eastern Conference championship game because these two look like the real deal. Well, the first thing I will say, Alex, I- I'm just so glad we didn't get Jack Edwards calling that fight, who does a TV play-by-play for Boston, because he is probably the biggest homer in the National Hockey League. He was, so fun story here, during the Stanley Cup final last year, he was sitting behind me and Amy Mark scores, yeah. and they put us in a little sweet basically for the media and it was amy and i it was barry melrose and steve levy and then it was the television boston bruins play-by-play guy i've never seen somebody at a hockey game stand up and cheer for his team more than this guy oh, does he's terrible he i mean he he takes it over the line like listen i curve curves a homer i'm a homer we all we all are biased to our team and you should be because right. the majority listens are but we we give credit to the other team, and yeah. if someone's losing a fight for the Blues, I say that. Oh, Ivan Barbashev took a couple hard ones there. Like I will say that. I remember Jack Edwards. He used to call fights all the time, and, and every time a Bruins player was in a fight, whether they were winning or losing or getting absolutely demolished, he would always say that. And Chara comes back with more. One time I fought um, who was Campbell. Greg Campbell as a centerman, and, and the fight was very even. We, we exchanged blows, and I'll never forget him calling it. And he goes, oh, and this this Vitaly is looking like one ugly husky dog because I went to Northeastern down the street. And I'll never forget that because that fight's been on YouTube for a long time. And I'm like, I'm winning the fight. What is he talking about? I get the job. My first game in Boston last year, I go right to his his, his booth. Yes. I walk up. I got the fight, and I just play it. And he just looks at it. He doesn't know who I am. He just looks at it. He's like, ha, ha, yeah, yeah. I go, Jack, I won that fight. He goes, oh, Vitaly, what's I yeah, I was just having a good time. Like I'm like, Get out of here. You're terrible, man. So to continue the story. He, he, when he stood up in the in the in the suite, Joe, he like this was the game six where the Boston Bruins were already up by like five goals. Yeah. It was like six to one or six to two. This was the final seconds of the game, and they scored the empty netter. He stood up and fist pumped, and he goes, "Take that, St. Louis!" Oh, he's tough, man. And he walks out of the room, and Barry Melrose goes. 
geez, who do you think he's rooting for? <laughs> Jeez, man, yeah, he's something. But uh, to, to your point, Alex, sorry, we got a little sidetracked no, here. No, no, I loved it. My blood gets a little boiling when I talk about Jack. I'm Edwards. so glad you confronted him. You're my hero like you always are, Joey V. <laughs> uh, Washington, Boston. You're absolutely right. NBC Sports Network game right now. Uh, TJ Oshie with the two, the two tucks in, both on breakaways, actually. I think this is – I think I agree. I think this is going to be the Eastern Conference Final. I don't know if there's a team in the East that is as heavy or that can play through the heaviness of these two teams. I think Boston might have the edge, but Alex, like you said, uh, the only thing that Boston's disadvantage right now is the fact that they still may be a little worn out from last June. Yeah, well, and I think that'll be the biggest thing going against them. And Washington, you know, that's always been the hump that they've never been able to get over is dealing with the Boston Bruins in the playoffs. And, of course, the Capitals winning the Stanley Cup and Boston with a little vengeance right now. You know, watching these two teams play, Joe, and, of course, this is the Metro Division Um is the Metro Division the best division? And if we're approaching the All Star Game, is that the best division in hockey, or is the Central Division the best division in hockey? I think the Metro has the best players in it. Uh-huh. But I think that as far as uh, the toughness of the ability to win games, uh, I would say the Central is still loaded up. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think the Central is as a as a, as a team in the Central who's trying to push for a playoff spot. I don't think any 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 division. And the National Hockey League is as tough to get through than the Central. But then from a player standpoint, from just a skill standpoint and like just a supreme athletes, I mean, look at the Metro. They are just completely stacked up. It's so funny, too, because, of course, the All-Star game is three on three. They've changed the format because, of course, it's it's entertaining. There's no question. But when you think of those matchups, you know, you think of who's going to be on that team. You know, an Alex Ovechkin, a David Pasternak, a Brad Marchand, a Sidney Crosby if he wasn't banged up. But then you look at the Central Division, and to me, Joe, I, I think there's an argument for about five or six players on this Blues roster. But in the Central Division, you know, you got the Patrick Canes. You have the Miko Koivus from the Minnesota Wild. You got the Rantanens and the Landeskogs and the McKinnons from Colorado. But this season... There's an argument for five or six Blues players that should be representing this All-Star game. And that's a lot. And that and that is a lot. Because normal is about three. Uh, yeah. I mean, last year we sent Ryan O'Reilly. That was it? It was one. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, you look at uh, that last year, I think the most representatives, I want to say last year, was it Co- no, it was Nashville? I can't, I can't remember from the Central right now off the top of my head. But, you know, Ryan O'Reilly was the only representative of St. Louis. I, I do believe that we will see four St. Louis Blues in the all-star game uh, come January, uh, you know, and, and this is just speculation, but if the, if the all-star game was right now, I mean, you got David Perron who's sitting at 30 points right now, which is even for Shifley, which is third in the division alone. So, you know, I, and I should probably back it up a little bit uh, for the fans out there, 11 players per division. Yeah. Um, you have six forwards, three defensemen, two goalies. The captains are voted on, by the fans, which is an interesting um, little wrinkle here for mm-hmm. St. Louis, which the fans can actually really contribute to this. But to my original point, four players from St. Louis, I think, can um, represent this team. I think the lock should be Jordan Bennington. I think you look at him and Ben Bishop, right? I mean, numbers yeah. wise, I think those are the two top goal tenders in, in the division. I know Jordan's on a little bit of a slide, but if he can make up a little bit of ground and get back to his winning ways, I think he's a lock. I think that uh, Petro should be a lock. He's yep. sitting at third in points right now, right behind Yossi and, and Kale McCarr in Colorado. So those two, to me, are locks. 
If David Perron continues on this, I would love to see David Perron become an all-star. And then, you know, although his points have fallen off and he may not close the gap because other players are coming back from injury, like the Rantanens and the Landeskogs of the world, but I think this is where the fans can really contribute and uh, vote in Ryan O'Reilly yeah. for the captain, not only because of what he's done here, but, you know, Conn Smythe winner, I think he actually is a leader. So if you, if you uh, St. Louis Strong can get together and maybe vote in a Ryan O'Reilly for the All-Star game, I think David Perron, point-wise, definitely deserves it. I think Petro's a lock, and I think Jordan Bennington has every right to be there along with Ben Bishop. So we could see four, which is still a lot, yeah. uh, and it's still very early. But uh, to me, those are the those are the four I would keep an eye on. And don't mention, forget to mention, Braden Chen. That was the one that I was going to say. I was going to come back to you with Ryan O'Reilly's great, but Braden Chen has led this team. So I think that's the argument. You know, the other one, too, and I don't I, I see the argument as to why he's not in the conversation. But Colton Pareko yeah. has had an awesome start to the year. Now, the points wise, he's not there. He's got one goal. Mm-hmm. But. If you look at the way that he contributes offensively, defensively, how he's a 200-foot style defenseman, I don't think there's anybody like him in the NHL. Now, will he get to the all-star level? Yeah, I think at some point he will, but for right now, I understand, but you could make an argument for him. You could. I think he would have to get voted in because, you know, the all-star, it's so much... uh you know, predicted upon points, uh, unfortunately. Right. and Like unfortunately, the voting at the end of the year Like is. the voting at the end of the year for defensemen of the year and the Veznas and whoever else is out there. Numbers just matter so much, unfortunately, for, for defensemen and forwards alike. So for Colton Pareko, I think he's a little bit ways away. And I, I just feel like Petro could be that guy. And, and, you know, Braden Shen right in the mix there. And, and he could be just on the outskirts. I mean, the yeah. only real locks at this point, you'd have to say, are McKinnon and Kane as they sit at 47 and 36 points uh, leading the division right now, then it's a big drop-off right there. I mean, Shifley and Perron are sitting at 30, and Patrick Laine is at 29, and Ryan O'Reilly just off the mark there at 27. So it it gets back to my original thing. When you kind of compare the talent uh, from the Central to the Metro, uh, I mean, there's a big drop there. A player right now with 30 points is in the All-Star mix uh, for the Central, like a David Perron and and Ryan O'Reilly. But you go out to the Metro and – it is just so incredibly stacked yep. up, it's insane. Pasternak, Ovechkin, Marchand, Carlson. Hell, you got Evgeny Malkin. Malkin. I mean, you have some dominant forces when it comes to that Metro division yep. compared to what the Central division. And I think it's been a slow start to the Central division this year. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, really, you've had injuries to Colorado. And some of those guys, I mean, that perfection line that is... Ranton and Ran- Scott. Those guys usually are at 50, 60 points at this point of the season. Right. Chicago's having a down year. Nashville's having a down year. Mm-hmm. Minnesota's having a down year. And then, of course, St. Louis, who, yeah, they look good, but I think you'd see more points from Braden Shen. And look, Shen's been great, but you'd see more points from Shen if Tarasenko was still around because mm-hmm. they've had a lot of different wingers. I think you're seeing a, a hell of a start from David Perron, but Ryan O'Reilly would tell you he's not playing to his best. And Jordan Bennington, he would tell you he's not playing to his best. So I would say Central is slumping a little bit compared to what they usually are. Yeah, no, I, I could see that point for sure. I, I just think as far as how these teams match up and the heaviness and the defensive hockey and the, the, the way these coaches coach these teams – I mean, heck, even Bruce Boudreau in Minnesota. Minnesota's starting to find a little bit of a groove now, and uh, every team is just as scary. And, you know, I look at strength of division like you play a division game, whether you're playing the the team in the first in that division or you're playing the team in the last. Maybe you're playing the Chicago Blackhawks or you're playing the St. Louis Blues. 
every night, if you go in there and you think, man, this is going to be a heavy opponent, mm-hmm. and, and if we don't play our best, we're going to lose this game. To me, that is a sign of a great division, and I look across the Central as that. We go in and play the Chicago Blackhawks here, I think, on Saturday night. Yeah. To me, the Blues better be ready. I mean, that is a team that could that could jump on you and, and take advantage of you. And, and that's why I feel this division has always been so solid over the last two to three years. You know, compare it just the Pacific right now in the West. I mean, Anaheim struggling, L.A. Uh, abysmal, uh, San Jose just fired their coach. I mean, those are those are teams at the bottom there. Where if you're the Edmonton Oilers, you're chomping the bit mm-hmm. to play these teams because it's point night. But uh, <laughs> hey, do you think Connor McDavid and uh, Drysaddle make the All Star game? Oh God! <laughs> I think they basically will be the Pacific Division in the All Star Game. Maybe they just have two forwards on that team. That'd be the only way. Hell, they could probably outskate everybody else out there with a two-on-three with those two. He's Joe Vitale, I'm Alex Ferrari. Let's take our final break of this week in hockey. We'll come back with what's up with that, which includes a stick to a face during a celebration, a goaltender losing his mind, and somebody was scoreboarded. So we'll talk all about that next here on 101 ESPN. So my favorite segment as we wrap things up here on This Week in Hockey, get about five more minutes with Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario with you. What's up with that? There's some weird stuff that's going on the last couple of weeks in the NHL. So I'll throw a couple of quick hitters at Joe Vitale. Have you seen the video, Joe, of the Boston Bruins mock brawl on the ice when they went zombie land on everybody (laughs) i don't know what the hell happened and we haven't seen an an explanation of it but basically every forward and defenseman on that ice just got into a little dog pile in center (laughs) ice after a practice and the video is tuka rask just unloading his hockey stick on the goalpost. yeah i gotta give the goalie props because he took that bad boy down to the nub at the bottom of it he just whack 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 i mean just coming down like a chimney those, those goalie sticks are expensive i'm sure the trainers and the owners especially probably didn't care for his reaction but yeah it kind of looked like the scene from i am legend where all the zombies are climbing up the building chasing down will smith and and you know, i tell you the worst i've ever seen uh in, in my career was i believe it was uh brent johnson in pittsburgh when he got pulled and i was remember i was a scratch i was in the locker room i just see johnny come in same thing slash there goes the blade then it goes he keeps slashing whack whack and it keeps chipping off six inches every time he gets down about the last eight inch nub he takes it over to the saw and he actually saws it you gotta take it to the saw he saws it he was so mad that poor stick that poor tree i well it's so funny because after tuka just destroys the stick he goes and picks up the scraps he's not finished he just starts chucking it into the seats and the frustration just builds for a goal tender in the National Hockey League. Another one. What's up with Mark Borowicki from the Ottawa Senators? Dude is Superman. Yeah. So he's on a road trip. He's out getting food and he sees a robbery take place. Some lady's purse stolen away from her and he stops the robbery in the heat of it. Yeah, it was in Vancouver, wasn't it? Was it was Vancouver, I believe. And he, he sees the guy go for the purse, and he runs over and he stops it. You know what? The Ottawa Senators did a great spoof video. Did you see that? A yep. RoboCop. And they put they put his face over the RoboCop body. and was Called a, a, a BoroCop. It was great. He did something I've always wanted to do in public, and this is going to sound weird. I've always wanted to be like a minor hero in public really? and like do that. Like find someone whose purse is being robbed and like jump in or something. I know this is going to sound really weird. I've always wanted to be at a restaurant where someone next to me starts to choke 
and then I, I just Same. get up and I just get my steak knife and I just I go right under the, the trachea, uh, right on the trachea, the tracheotomy or whatever. Slice open, get my oh. uh, my waiter's pen, pop out the ink, and do use you know that to tube. I never done it before, but I would love to try it and save someone's life. Oh my god, that would be bad I'll to the stick bone. With the Heimlich maneuver, <laughs> rather than cut them open, don't no. you have to, like suck the blood out too? And no, I, I go right for the trach, right on the Adam's apple. We just go right for it. <laughs> Someone's just choking on a piece of bread, and Joey comes up. I got this. I got this. I need a knife. I need a pen or straw, hard straw, something for the tube. Yeah, I'm just a little jealous a of that. Ache and Joey's cutting open somebody's trachea. So Mark Boricki with the uh, the savior. How about this one, Joe? Max Domi from the Montreal Canadiens the other night scores a huge goal, celebrating with his teammates, takes his own teammate's stick to the face, and he starts gushing blood. I'm surprised, first of all, this doesn't happen more often. I am too. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, the dog piles when you win a Stanley Cup or a big game, everyone's jumping in. Like, how does a skate... Overtime? Yeah, how, yeah, how does a skate or something not get up and clip someone and give a concussion or more cuts? But, you know, for Max Domi, you know, you know he's in a position now where, you know, he's single, he's in Montreal... Chicks are digging the scars, dig scars, and he's got a little blood there, and and he's a domey man. He's a tough guy. Yeah, you got to pretty much do that if you're a domey. I feel like. All right, the final one, and it happened in Edmonton, which is awesome. If you don't know what the term scoreboarding means, basically it's when a team or a player is getting chirped, and he goes straight to pointing to the scoreboard. Yeah. So last night, Carolina's putting a slaughter on the Edmonton Oilers. Dougie Hamilton, the game's six to one at this point. He, Dougie Hamilton's in the box, penalty box, and an Edmonton Oilers player is just banging on the glass, and he just looks at him and he points up to the scoreboard. <laughs> just the ultimate way of doing it, especially in the penalty box, like that has to probably piss players off so much. You know what? I I was playing in Pittsburgh, and Eric Goddard, who was our fighter at the time, I remember he was in the box for something, and and as he's watching the minutes wind down because I was going to hop on when he hops on the ice. I'm watching him, and right before the door opens he slams the glass right next to him before he hops out of the penalty box and then he comes flying over to the bench and and after the game everyone was laughing looking at this replay and we found out what he did he was getting chirped in the penalty box by some Phil- some annoying Philadelphia Flyer fan about how he's a plug and he can't play anymore what he did right before he jumps on the ice and he didn't say a word to this guy but right before he jumps on the ice the guy had a beer right on the ledge right where the glass meets he slams the glass a beer goes all over the guy and then he just flies on the ice. Talk about a flyby or a drive-by. I mean, and we watched the video of that and we laughed for hours, even on the plane ride home. But, you know, being in the penalty box, the fans can get antsy and, and they get aggressive. I love when the players give a little fight back like that. That would be the ultimate thing as a hockey player. Like, I would just be Terminator style, scoping out the boards of some <laughs> idiot that decided to put his nachos or his beer on the ledge and say, I'm going right there with the check. Or you can just do what Ty Domi did and just reach right over and just beat the living pulp out of some guy. Which that video is incredible if yeah. you haven't seen it. So that's our What's Up With That segment, and that is Joe Vitale. Always great to have him in studio here on This Week in Hockey. We come your way every week here at 101 ESPN Wednesday nights, normally from 6 to 8 o'clock. Don't forget, we got Blues Hockey tomorrow night. Vegas Golden Knights in town, 7 o'clock puck drop, a 6 o'clock Mitsubishi electric pregame show. Thank you to Joe. Thank you to Mike McKenna. And a big thank you to Dan Betlock. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll talk to you tomorrow night on 101 ESPN for more Blues Hockey.
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com.